This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Jeff Begays, and on this edition of America Change Forever from CBS News Radio, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the images that could haunt the Biden administration for the next four years. We're aggressively reaching out to them multiple times a day through multiple channels of communication, phone email, text messaging, to determine whether they still want to leave uh, and uh, to get the most up-to-date information and instructions to them for how to do so. A suicide bomb attack on Thursday as U.S. and Afghan citizens try to escape the Taliban takeover. The, the threat from ISIS is extremely real. We believe it is their desire to continue those attacks, and we expect those attacks to continue. And we're doing everything we can to be prepared for those attacks. That includes reaching out to the Taliban, who are actually providing the outer security cordon around the airfield. The Biden administration rushed to withdraw at the deadline at the end of the month. We are currently on a pace to finish by August the 31st. The sooner we can finish, the better. Each day of operations brings added risk to our troops. But the completion by August 31st depends upon the Taliban continuing to cooperate and allow access to the airport for those who were were transporting out and no disruptions to our operations. On this episode, we go in depth. First, we begin with Olivia Gazis, the CBS News intelligence and national security reporter. Olivia, the suicide bombing may have been a game changer. Did U.S. intelligence agencies see this attack coming? Yes, I think we have every indication that that was the case because you heard the president and senior national security officials saying since Sunday, essentially, that they had credible intelligence that there was an acute and persistent threat specifically from the terror group that operates in Afghanistan known as ISIS-K. You heard those warnings issued again and again throughout this week and used as a reason why the president wanted to adhere so strongly to that August 31st deadline. He said that every day that we are still on the ground there is a day of growing risk to our troops. And unfortunately, we have seen the nightmare scenario come to pass, but I think that you can fully assume we had pretty good visibility that it was coming. We saw a State Department alert issued that told Americans to stay away from the airport gates because without going into specifics about the intelligence, there was a threat on the ground there. So even though visibility was good, prevention was not possible. And so we've seen the very disaster that the White House wanted to avoid unfolding on the ground now. Are there concerns that there could be more attacks the closer we get to the deadline for withdrawal? Absolutely. That's the number one question that intelligence officials are going to want to answer for the president is, is this the end or is this the beginning? We don't know yet what those assessments are saying. The fact that this was a complex attack involving multiple explosions 
heightens the possibility that there could be more. Of course, it continues to be a chaotic situation on the ground that we unfortunately are in a position where a lot of our security depends on the Taliban. So we find ourselves in this very complicated situation where we don't have control of the security on the ground. We are outsourcing that effectively to the Taliban who have encircled the perimeter of the airport and so are relying on a future intelligence to come from some of those corners as to whether there might be additional attacks carried out. CBS News intelligence and national security reporter Olivia Gazis. Thank you. Now to Jamal Simmons, CBS News political analyst. Jamal, what do you think are the political ramifications for what we're now seeing unfold in Afghanistan for the Biden administration? President Biden faces, I think, short-term and long-term challenges. At first, the question is how much damage does this do to his poll numbers and his standing? And obviously, there's the emotional toll of people having died and on his watch. So this is a this is a pretty big crisis for any young administration and so the political ramifications of that could be could be very, fairly serious in the short term. What the president has to be focused on also is how can he get ahead of some of the challenges? How can he show the American people he can handle what's coming next? And as heartbreaking as deaths are on the ground, he has got to channel that grief into something that can be useful for the American people later. And so when he speaks to the American people, what message do you expect him to convey? President Biden started off very quickly a few couple of weeks ago talking about the commitment to getting the American people out of Afghanistan. He didn't want to send any more American troops there to fight and die in Afghanistan. Now he's got a challenge because American troops have died in Afghanistan on his watch. So he's got to tell the American people why, as tragic those those deaths were, they're in the service of getting America out of a forever war and keeping more American sons and daughters from having to go fight and serve. So, you know, it's a tough challenge. The next thing, though, is to focus on what's going to happen as the challenges unfold and showing the American people that he can handle the challenges that are coming his way. If you're in the White House right now working for this president, doesn't he run the risk of owning any terrorist attack that comes out of that region because of this withdrawal, and now you see the the suicide bombing on Thursday, doesn't he risk having that hanging over his administration should there be any sort of terrorist attack with links to Afghanistan? First of all, the president is not the one who chose to get out of Afghanistan at this timetable. I mean, this was... President Trump, who chose to get out of Afghanistan, who initially even wanted to get troops out of Afghanistan last Christmas. So you can't tell me he would have gotten troops out faster six months ago than President Biden has gotten them out so far. So President Trump owns a piece of this. But the American people are mature. And of course, nobody wants to see a terrorist attack and no one wants to see someone die. But it's been 20 years now that America has been fighting these wars in this region. And I think the American public is pretty mature that there are going to be 
upcoming struggles and even some tough days. The question is, is the president focusing the American people on how he's going to protect them going forward? Why whatever thing that they're encountering isn't as bad as what would have occurred had he not taken these steps? And frankly, so many American men and women have gone into this region and fought and died. This isn't a vacuum. It's not like the American people are just learning about this for the first time. They've got a lot of history in this region. American troops are supposed to be out at the end of this month. But does that mean that is the end of messaging by this White House as it relates to Afghanistan in the coming weeks, months, and perhaps even longer than that? I don't think that the White House planned on talking about Afghanistan for very long, but I think the way that the Afghanistan pullout has occurred means that the White House will be talking about it for quite some time to come. And of course, the Republicans will do what they can to try to make the White House have to live with this, these set of struggling circumstances for as long as they can. So this is not anything that's going away anytime soon. So the president's going to have to manage this for a while going forward. Are you surprised that we haven't heard more um, prominent Republicans against Biden's policies right now in Afghanistan? Did you expect to hear more from them at this point, given what's unfolding on the ground there? I think what's happening right now is reminiscent of the way Republicans and, and Democrats of opposite parties would behave in previous eras. You know, when American troops are at stake, when American lives are on the line, people show more restraint. Uh, the politics stop. What's surprising is that in the re- in recent years, foreign entanglements and American troops being at stake hasn't seemed to be something that stopped partisan sniping. So President Biden said that he was going to try to take us back to an era that was a little more productive and had a little and a little less tumultuous. This might be a sign that for whatever disagreements they have. Democrats and Republicans, at least, are trying to be respectful while there are lives at stake. Jamal Simmons, thank you. In watching news about Afghanistan, you may have heard about a terrorist group called ISIS-K. Who are they? And what kind of threat could they pose to the U.S.? Joining me now is Colin Clark. He is the Director of Policy and Research at the Sufan Group. Clark has testified before Congress and has published several books on terrorism. Colin, thanks for joining us. Who do you think are the terrorist groups in Afghanistan that the U.S. should be concerned about? Is it solely ISIS-K? No, ISIS-K is among the groups we need to be concerned about, but it's certainly not the only one. Uh, in addition to ISIS-K, I would, I would look at several of ISIS-K's adversaries to include al-Qaeda, which is aligned with the Taliban, and the Haqqani Network, which is also a part of the Taliban. So, those are some of the major ones. You've then got a handful of smaller jihadi groups in and around the broader region, the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, uh, the Pakistani Taliban across the border. And, and then, frankly, you've got kind of what I would call free agent jihadis uh, from, from the broader region that could really serve as a force multiplier uh, if they begin flooding into the country as I expect them to. So what makes ISIS-K dangerous? Well, I think any ISIS affiliate or branch is dangerous. Uh, this just happens to be one of the groups that's among the most potent. Uh, in 2019, I published a book called After the Caliphate, The Future of the Islamic State and the Terrorist Diaspora. And I kind of mapped out where I saw these various ISIS affiliates going. 
and I and then I identified uh, ISIS K as among uh, the most worrisome uh, for a number of reasons. But above all else, Afghanistan has the infrastructure for violent jihad. This is a country that's been at war for four decades, you know, going all the way back to the 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So it's a country that's awash in weapons. Uh, it's got no shortage of militants with battlefield experience. Uh, and it's across the border from Pakistan, which has long provided a safe haven for jihadis of various stripes uh, in the, the federally administered tribal areas there along the Afghan border. But aren't ISIS-K and the Taliban at odds? Can ISIS-K survive and thrive with the Taliban leading Afghanistan? ISIS-K and the Taliban are indeed at odds. They're mortal adversaries. Uh, and I don't expect ISIS-K to ever be able to usurp or dethrone the Taliban. They just don't have the strength. They don't have the numbers. Most estimates suggest ISIS-K has about uh, between 1,500 and 2,200 fighters under arms. Even though I expect those numbers to swell with incoming foreign fighters, it won't be enough. They don't have the firepower to unseat the Taliban. However, they could continue to play a spoiler role, which is really what we're seeing today. The point of the airport attacks is that it's twofold. It's one, to attack and target Western military troops, including the U.S., but it's also to embarrass the Taliban because the Taliban is now the governing entity in Afghanistan, and it's a way of showing that they can't control and provide security to Afghan civilians. What about the Haqqani network? What makes them dangerous? The Haqqani network is probably the most insidious threat in all of Afghanistan. This is a network that has, you know, dates back decades and has worked hand in glove with the Taliban, with other bad actors in the region, and really knows the lay of the land, knows the terrain, knows how to operate, and is among the most fearsome terrorist entities, I think, throughout South Asia. Doesn't the Haqqani network have knowledgeable bomb makers? You know, I hate to glorify them by calling them skilled. They are skilled. There's a concept called tacit knowledge transfer. Right. And there's so much emphasis and focus these days on what militants and terrorist groups can learn via the Internet. And, you know, and that's that's a real concern. But there's no substitute for tacit knowledge transfer of having skilled bomb makers go and actually train other terrorists with hands on training. And, and that's what we're seeing in Afghanistan. It's really become a cradle of jihad. It's and once again, I mean, it's Jeff, it's amazing that we're sitting here having this conversation 20 years almost to the day of, of September 11th, it's come full circle. And we're now almost, I feel like, starting at scratch where after two decades, uh, untold blood and treasure spilled by the United States, we're now looking at a country that's going to be run by a terrorist group. It is disheartening considering how many American families have suffered losses, their family members, children, husbands, wives, etc. It's really disheartening. And what about Al-Qaeda? We're talking about them third in line here because the assumption was that they had been diminished. They're nowhere near as strong as they were 20 years ago. Their leadership has been attrited through a very aggressive counterterrorism campaign led by the United States. But you know what? Drone strikes aren't strategy. They're tactics. And we've long confused tactics and strategy in this conflict in Afghanistan. It's one of the reasons we are where we are today. I fully expect al-Qaeda to regenerate its networks under the protection of the Taliban. President Biden has suggested one of the reasons for leaving Afghanistan is because we can conduct what he calls over-the-horizon counterterrorism missions. Some people call it offshore counterterrorism. But really, that's, that's no 
substitute for having 3,500 troops on the ground. Uh, We're going to be without eyes and ears. We're going to lose valuable intelligence assets. And if you just look at some of the blunders that we've made over the past several weeks alone, I mean, having no idea that the Afghan National Security Forces were going to completely fold to the Taliban and not even put up a fight. When you look at what we've gotten wrong in terms of intelligence, it certainly doesn't provide reassurance that we're going to get other things right, including that al-Qaeda could be regenerating right under our nose without us knowing in Afghanistan, the same group that attacked us 20 years ago. Prior to 9-11, didn't the U.S. have a similar offshore counterterrorism policy? Isn't that what allowed Osama bin Laden to plan and carry out the attack? The president's essentially arguing that our capabilities have improved so much over the last 20 decades that it's feasible. And I agree. We do have sophisticated and exquisite over-the-horizon counterterrorism capabilities far beyond what we had pre-9-11. However, the question becomes, is that going to be enough? My assessment is that it won't, is that we need what we had on the ground, uh, which was actual troops and other personnel that were providing us with critical intelligence, human intelligence, signals intelligence, and we're not going to have that now. And so that's my main concern is that this witch's brew that we see in Afghanistan with these various jihadi groups is once again going to catch us by surprise. You mentioned foreign fighters earlier. Does that mean that you expect the number of foreign fighters traveling to Afghanistan to spike again? Without question. I mean, the Taliban victory in Afghanistan is a boon for transnational jihadist groups. We still have an untold number of fighters that have survived the conflict in Iraq and Syria that belong to ISIS and have been laying in wait either in Iraq and or Syria or third party countries looking for the next conflict. And now they've found it. And so I expect this to be a situation where a rising tide lifts all boats. All jihadist groups in the country will benefit from the Taliban victory, both the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and on the opposite side of the ledger, the Islamic State. And so we're likely to see just a, a return to civil war. This is, this is a failed state. There's no other way to put it. And it's a danger to not only the region, but the international community. And just so we're clear on what foreign fighters are, these are the fighters coming in from Europe. There have been a large number of these kinds of fighters coming from Europe, going to Afghanistan or Iraq over the last really 20 years or so. We've even had some foreign fighters coming from the U.S. or at least trying to travel from the U.S. to these war zones. So is is that how you would describe the foreign fighter problem? So the foreign fighter problem is actually broader than that. It, It indeed includes Western foreign fighters, Europeans, Americans, and others. But a foreign fighter is anyone from outside of the country where the conflict is. So it's Pakistanis, it's Uzbeks, Chechens, others. And so we're likely to see an uptick from foreign fighters throughout the region. Look, geographically, it's closer for them to get there. There there are more connections and links between regional foreign fighters and the conflict in Afghanistan. But it also does include fighters from all over the world. If you look at the original mobilization in Iraq and Syria, when ISIS rose in 2014, I mean, they they were able to draw in over 40,000 foreign fighters from over 110 different countries. You had fighters coming from places like Cambodia and Chile, uh, where there's no association with global jihad. So if these groups in Afghanistan are able to replicate even a fraction of that success, we're in for some serious trouble. 
once again, it sounds like the U.S. is a hornet's nest on its hands in Afghanistan. It is. It's a total hornet's nest, and it's one that we have less ability to control than at any point in the previous two decades, because after August 31st, we'll have no presence there on the ground. We're ceding the battlefield to the Taliban and to our other adversaries, the Russians, the Chinese, Iranians, others, other countries that will attempt to exert influence in, in Afghanistan. The Russians have also had a troubled history in Afghanistan. Are you surprised that we haven't heard more from adversaries like Russia? We haven't, and except for that the Russians are also pulling their people out. So that gives you a sense of how serious they see the threat. They're you know, warning Russian nationals to leave the country because they're concerned. I think the Turks are doing the same. But rest assured that U.S. adversaries are watching this and probably enjoying what they're seeing. And they're learning from this, right? They're learning how America fights, or in this case, doesn't fight. So I think those are things that they're going to internalize for the conflicts that we may find ourselves in with those countries in the future. Colin, thank you. Thank you. We'll have more America Change Forever from CBS News. Joining me now is Larry Wilkerson, former chief of staff to former Secretary of State Colin Powell. He is also a retired United States Army colonel who served in Vietnam. Colonel Wilkerson, thanks for being with us. What are your thoughts about this suicide bombing in Afghanistan? I hearken back, as heartless as it might seem, to what Colin Powell used to say to me all the time, quoting Carl von Clausewitz. Beware the vividness of transient events. And I think that is what America does least best in some respects, particularly its media, not uh, present company accepted, I might say, but the media focuses on transient events and makes those transient events seem as if they're earth shattering. While as a human being, I have to lament the death and the, the tragedy of that death and lament the fact my government was so incompetent with its withdrawal operations, I still have to look at this in a much bigger strategic landscape. And in that landscape, it seems just more the same. Well, you have in the past, you've been critical of the government and prior administrations in terms of its, its policies in the Middle East. But in this case, would any withdrawal have been smooth and easy? It was always going to be difficult. Absolutely. It's the most difficult. In, in military terms, it's the most difficult operation to conduct. And as we say in the military, a withdrawal under pressure, any kind of pressure, is the most difficult operation to conduct. So, and, and given the last 20 years, one would expect it to be rather chaotic, much the way Vietnam was, my war. You also have to look at the whole sweep of history here. You have to go back to Zig Brzezinski and Jimmy Carter and Charlie Wilson and all the things that the empire, the American empire, created that are coming to fruition today. And you have to give this president some credit, at least, for seeing that strategic sweep, however inchoately, and doing something about it to end it, at least with regard to this particular theater of war. But when it became clear that the U.S. was going to pull out of Afghanistan, what was your initial feeling? Well, I didn't think the president had the guts, frankly. I'd heard this from a number of presidents. You, you didn't think former President Trump did, or you didn't, you didn't think that this president, Biden, did? I never knew what Trump was doing. Certainly didn't know what he was thinking. 
I knew that Zal Khalid Zad, negotiate our principal negotiator with the Taliban in Doha, was no one I would entrust such negotiations to. But Trump did. And to this day, I don't think anyone in the government, maybe not even Sullivan or Blinken or Biden himself, knows exactly what Zal negotiated with the Taliban. Only person that knows that is Zal. In that sense, I think the overall operation could have been expected to be somewhat incompetent or appear that way anyway, and to be somewhat as we're seeing it unfold even now. And the fact that ISIS might come in or some other terrorist organization, Lashkar-e-Taiba comes to mind immediately, run exclusively by Pakistan's ISI, and take advantage of it to put a lick or two on the empire before it gets out and make it even more humiliating for the empire, is uh, just to be expected. You keep calling the United States of America the empire. Why do you do that? Uh, Because we have 800 bases, outposts, if you will, in the world, costing between 75 and $100 billion a year in taxpayer money. And the rest of the world combined, including China and Russia, have perhaps 70, 75. If that's not an empire, I don't know what is. So it sounds like what you're advocating for is a smaller military footprint. That plus I'm advocating for the empire to be a little less imperial. That might sound like a contradiction of terms, but I don't think so. Consult the British Empire, for example, when they suffered this or that defeat, particularly on the subcontinent and in South Africa and elsewhere, they became a little bit more benign, if you will. They became a little bit less imperial. Um, They always returned to the haughty imperialness of the empire, even under Churchill. But as they began to expire, and they began to expire in 1890, uh, they finally kicked the bucket completely in 1956 when Eisenhower kicked them out of Suez. Um, But you can go gracefully and you can go catastrophically and tragically. I'd like to see us find an off-ramp from this more or less aggressive imperialism and find a little bit more accommodating uh, republic, if you will, more of a pares into pares in the world, equals amongst equals instead of first. And if you don't believe that, I'll give you the bayonet, primus into pares. But you think that's a fair assessment of U.S. foreign policy at this time? I do, uh, particularly since George W. Bush took over and claim to establish a balance of power that favors freedom. I think Dick Cheney took his administration away from him, at least for four or five years. And it wasn't a balance of power that favored freedom. It was an imbalance of power that favored exclusively the the United States. But we see what that produced. It produced the same thing that produced for Rome when it attempted to do that. And it, it produced the same thing for a more modern empire like England when it attempted to do that, particularly on the subcontinent. You just can't tell the rest of the world that unless you obey my dictates, I will bring the bayonet and the bomb to you and finish you off. And that's really what we've been doing for the past 20 years. And the rest of the world, you now have polling that shows probably two to three billion people in the world believe that the number one threat to their future and their children's future is the United States of America. That's a hell of a state to be in, even if you are an empire. But did you always feel this way? Because what people may not know who are listening to this interview, you mentioned Bush and Cheney, but you worked in that administration. You were chief of staff for uh, Colin Powell. 
former Secretary of State. So have you evolved in your thinking? Unquestionably. But I will say that I did work for the one man in that administration, well, the one principal in that administration, who had uh, imagination, a sense of humanity, a sense of time, a sense of history, and a sense of the limits of power, most importantly. So it wasn't like I was enmeshed in Dick Cheney and George Bush's spider web. Um, As a matter of fact, Colin Powell and I and others in the State Department and elsewhere fought to get out of that web for the whole four years we were there. And that fight took a lot out of us. For example, when we left in January 2005, Powell wasn't speaking to me and I wasn't speaking to him. So uh, there was a great deal of personal costs as well as professional costs to even being a member of that administration. Well, and you have acknowledged you regret not speaking up more, and correct me if I'm wrong, when Colin Powell made the case to go into into Iraq before the UN, you, you regret how that went down. I do. I feel like, and I'm not saying we were witting at the time, but that's saying we were a bit stupid that we perpetrated a hoax, as I've said before, on the American people, the international community, and the UN Security Council. We claimed that Saddam Hussein had WMD, and he didn't. And there was enough evidence lying around in the hustings, as it were, to tell us that it was a very, very doubtful case. And yet we allowed George Tenet, John McLaughlin, and a host of others, including the Congress of the United States, who all agreed with the October 2002 National Intelligence Estimate that said he did have WMD. We allowed all of that weight to pressure us into participating in the hoax. When was the last time you spoke with Colin Powell? Oh, some time ago. Let me put it this way. We have a rather frosty relationship now. He has a very, very selective memory. And I have a very, very careful and analytical memory that is supported by students on two college campuses who've done massive research for me. I once said to Rich Armitage, the Deputy Secretary of State, and Colin Powell maybe a couple of years ago that I knew more about the Bush administration, first and second, than they would ever know because of these brilliant students I had beavering away in the trenches of primary sources, archives, and so forth finding out what was actually done in both administrations, the one I served in and the one that followed it. And so that doesn't make for friendly relations when you know the truth, they don't know the full truth, and they've obfuscated a lot of what was the truth that they did know. It's standard stuff for people who leave government and leave government more or less angry at one another. How often do you think that is a consequence of working in government, that you leave with fewer friends than you had when you came in? I think LBJ's uh, statement that if you want a friend in Washington, you better get a dog is uh, revealing. But to answer your question more directly, it's difficult to serve in the government of the empire, the government that has grown up during the Cold War and become that empire since the end of World War II, and of late seems to have only one preoccupation, and that is endless stupid wars. It's difficult to serve in that empire and not come out with a, a really jaundiced feeling about not only your own service, but those with whom you serve. Especially after loss of life once again. Service members killed because of this suicide bombing in Afghanistan. 
Yes. At the end of the week. I belong to a group of veterans. Most are Afghanistan and Iraq and Somalia and Syria and Libya. And it goes on and on. And the conversations that I have with them are quite gut-wrenching, not just because of what they did in the theaters of war in which they participated, but what they saw done to civilians, to civilians' lives, to their homes, to their futures, and so forth and so on. And it's very difficult to listen to these veterans talk. I mean, I've got my own experience in Vietnam, which is still searing to me. But fortunately for me, I didn't have the experience that some of these young men and women have had. Really just gut-wrenching experiences watching villages destroyed by F-16, 250-pound, 500-pound bombs. One lieutenant is on the radio talking to the pilots and saying, stop, stop, stop. There's nothing left in that village but civilians. And yet the bombing goes on for another 10 or 15 minutes. And by the time he takes his unit and goes through the village, he finds all these dead civilians, children, women, and so forth. And it's all written up in Eric Edstrom's book, Eric, a major when he retired or left the military, West Point graduate, came back and served in the U.S. Army's premier unit, the Old Guard here in Washington. And he's written a book that's just, uh, it, 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 you can't read it without leaving tears on each page. Some people might be listening to this interview and they might think, hey, Larry Wilkerson, he has... He has a a really critical view of American military policy. How would you respond to them? That's true to a certain degree, but it's a critical view that thinks first and foremost of those people who have to carry it out. You know, we're at a point now where the all-volunteer force represents about 1% of the rest of us. That means the 99% of Americans have no skin in the game, and they indicate that readily by, if you ask them to find Afghanistan on a map, even now with all the turmoil there, they couldn't find it on a map. And until the present circumstances, they never even thought about it. It never entered their mind. Not only that, the military comes from, my army in particular now, comes from about seven states to the extent of 40% of its members. And the others come from places like the interior of Oklahoma, the interior of Maine, and so forth. Not exactly your billionaire's territory. So we've got this other situation of the poorest amongst us or the least advantaged amongst us, though they're capable and technologically sophisticated in many senses and make good soldiers and Marines and so forth. They are not representative of the so-called, quote, middle of America, unquote, or certainly not representative of the Ivy Leagues like Princeton, Dartmouth, Stanford, and so forth. That it's, It's unconscionable what we've done and what we've asked this group of soldiers, Marines, and others in the services to do in our name. And it's unconscionable that we let it let them go on doing it for 20 some odd years in order to enrich those members of the military industrial complex who are being enriched, incredibly enriched in terms of organizations like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. And incredible that we've let this go on for so long without more comment on it. Come back to my original comment about the vividness of transient events. Where were Americans during all the episodes and agonizing moments that Eric Edstrom, for example, records in his book? or that Danny Surgeon talks about in his talks, his podcasts and so forth, or that many other veterans talk about. Where were they then? 
Absent without leave, as one of my general officer friends says, Americans look at the U.S. military with apathy, fear, ignorance, indifference, but they don't look at it in, in the sense of thank you for your service, except for that moment they say thank you for your service. And incidentally, many of my veteran advisees on campus will tell you in a heartbeat that thank you for, the, for your service is not adequate. My general colleague in the All-Volunteer Force Forum, General Dennis Leach, often says to people who thank him for his service, oh, thank you. Where did you serve? And when he fixes them with that baleful stare as he asks that question, he notices usually how embarrassed they are by that question because they haven't served. And that's true of 99% of Americans. Colonel Wilkerson, thank you. Thank you for having me. That is it for this week's America Change Forever podcast. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcast. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, Jeff Begay, CBS, where you can send program ideas, or follow me on Instagram, Jeff Begay 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. For Gil Gross, I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America Changed Forever. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.